This is going to be quite practical this evening. It's maybe going to be different from a, from a normal preach as such. And I know there will, there will be some people with whom I've shared some of this before. And I also know that there's some people who have taken what I have shared before and used it with some of the young people here. So this is us all as a church joining together and doing something that some have already been involved in. Uh, thanks, Joel. Thanks, Deborah. As part of uh, our Lent series on spiritual disciplines or holy habits, we come tonight to Bible reading and meditation. And so far we, as a congregation on Sunday nights, have looked at silence and solitude. Last Sunday evening we looked at fasting. But tonight I, I want us to think about our own personal engagement with God's word. How do you approach this book during the week? How, how do you use it individually away from the corporate setting of church or of small groups. Because as with all the other holy habits we've looked at and we will look at, Bible reading and meditation enable us to do these four things. Nurture our relationships, our relationship primarily with Almighty God, but also our relationships with one another. They help us to guard our hearts, to train wisely for the spiritual life, and to reflect the example of Jesus. But when it comes to this book, I think it's fair to say that we live at a time and in a context where the Bible is increasingly sidelined and or treated with contempt. For the majority of people in 21st century Western society, the Bible is generally viewed in the same light as Shakespeare. It's part of our cultural heritage, but it's hardly relevant to daily life. And so although the Bible is still, and many of you know this, it is still the best-selling book of all time, there is no doubt that people's desire to engage with God's written revelation is on the decline. Now that's a cultural trend. But what we must recognize and admit is that it's also being identified as a trend and a growing characteristic of today's church and of 21st century disciples of Jesus Christ. Less of us apparently read or engage with the Bible at a personal level. A few years ago, the Bible Society commissioned a survey of churchgoers. And that survey discovered that personal Bible reading on a regular basis was at a relatively low level and is reducing all the time. And just to get a little bit of congregational participation right from the word go, why do you think that is? Why is personal engagement with God's word outside of a church Sunday context or small group context, why is it on the decline, do you think? Some people feed back to me. Okay, people generally read a lot less than they used to do. Thanks, Carol. People are too busy, and I think someone else said people don't have the time. Same sort of, okay. Any other reasons? TV? Yeah. It's not a priority. Okay, thank you. Someone over here, sir? Sorry? Loads of other books? Okay. 
Anything else? Okay. There's an enemy who doesn't want us to. Okay. One more? Okay, so everything, thanks Ryan, everything is instant now. And Bible reading and meditation is not an instant thing. Now I know we could, we could approach this holy habit or this discipline from a number of different angles. But I want to approach it from a slightly, hopefully different angle tonight. Because for me a key aspect of this discipline and of this holy habit lies in how we actually view this book. How we treat it. And how we see it. The Old Testament contains a really fascinating story about one king's very high view of God's word. Uh, Josiah became the 16th king of Judah whenever he was only 8 years old. For the previous 57 years, Judah had been ruled by evil kings who from God's perspective had made a complete mess of the monarchy. The previous king to Josiah had been Josiah's dad, Ammon, who sponsored idol worship and associated evils. And the king before that was Josiah's grandfather, Manasseh, who sacrificed his own sons and murdered so many people that it was said that Jerusalem was filled with innocent blood. And so in terms of role models, Josiah had very little going for him. But incredibly, one of the first things you read about this young king is this. He did what was pleasing in the Lord's sight. And he followed the example, not of his dad, not of his grandfather, but of his ancestor, David. He did not turn aside from doing what was right. Now, whenever Josiah was around 26 years of age, a major discovery is made. The high priest, Helkiah, finds God's word, or what there was of it at that time, buried in the temple. For years it had been lost, it had been misplaced, it had been ignored and forgotten about. But all of a sudden they rediscover it. And the high priest tells the court secretary, a guy called Shaphan, who rushes to tell Josiah the king. Now in 2009, we obviously haven't lost our only copy of the Bible. But sometimes it seems that we have lost it under a pile of busyness, indifference, time constraints, other interests, or good intentions. Whenever Shaphan read God's word to the king, Josiah found himself shocked, frightened, and deeply humbled. The Old Testament record tells us that Josiah tore his robes, and then he eventually called all the people together from the least to the greatest, and he read God's word aloud to them. Because Josiah saw God's word for what it was. That it was a vehicle, it was a means for communicating God's hopes to the people, God's instructions, God's warnings, God's promises. Josiah realized the potential and the power that the sacred text contained. He also realized how here in these words was the heart of Almighty God expressed. A few weeks ago, I showed you this rather challenging and provocative quote from Gandhi, and I said we'd return to it. 
Gandhi said, Christians look after a document containing enough dynamite to blow all civilization to pieces, turn the world upside down, and bring peace to a battle-torn planet. Then the sting. But they treat it as though it is nothing more than a piece of literature. And the question that I really want to ask this evening, and the question I want us to wrestle with, is how do you and I see this? How do we actually treat it? Because our answer to that question will profoundly impact how we approach it, how we use it, and how we engage with it. Josiah clearly saw this as more than just words. More than just another piece of literature. He recognized that it was distinctively and dynamically different from any other book. And therefore this evening what I want to tease out is how we really see, actually see, God's word. Now I'm pretty sure that the majority of us in this church this evening do see this book as God's word. I'm going to take that as read. Maybe that's too great an assumption, but I'm going to take that as read. But I actually want to go in a slightly different direction. Because I want us to explore, how does the Bible see itself? How does this book describe God's word? What is it compared to by the various writers? Now before we do that, let me mention one way that we often describe God's word which I honestly think is incredibly unhelpful. I wonder, have you ever described or heard others describe God's word as a manual for life? The manufacturer's handbook. Now, for a start, I'm not sure that image is biblical. But let me ask you a question. How many people here read the manual to their toaster, their TV, or their car? We will do if something goes wrong, because it's a great point of reference. But would you ever think of sitting down and reading a chapter of your microwave manual? Some people do. Nigel, is that a confession? (laughs) The thing is, I honestly don't think we would. Well, the majority of us, I don't think, would. And therefore, in some ways, I actually think it would be great if we ditched this description of this book. You can come back to me after. So if a manual for life isn't particularly biblical, nor particularly helpful image of God's word, let me suggest seven that are. And that's where these pictures come in. And I know some of you have been a little intrigued by them. Seven images, seven objects that I want us to consider and really think about. And here's what I would like you to do. Every 45 seconds, a different one of these images will appear on the screen. And I would like you to write down at least two reasons why you think the Bible describes itself as these seven objects. So, for example, before we begin, why do you think the Bible describes itself as bread? What does that object convey to you about God's word? Now let me encourage you to be obvious in your thinking, but also to be creative in your thinking. Okay? And I'd like us to do this in silence. So John's going to play a piece of music for us, and as I say, every 45 seconds, 
another image will come on. But at least two reasons. But list as many as you like. Thanks, John. as bread. What did that image or what does that image convey to you? Let's do this pretty quick. It nourishes you. Thanks Johnny. A basic everyday need. Thank you Peter. Anything else? It tastes good. It's fresh. Regular regular consumption. Available to all. Satisfies Hungry. The hunger. Okay. It rises. See, that's setting our minds off on a good one, Johnny. Great. It gives energy. It's a carbohydrate. Mmm. Interesting. The more you teach, yeah. David Watson said, God's word to us is the very ingredient that feeds our faith. If we feed our souls regularly in God's word, we should become robust spiritually, just as we feed on ordinary food and become robust physically. Do you know, one of the things about when it comes to Bible reading that people often say to me is, do you know, I read the Bible and then, like, maybe an hour or two hours later, I forget what I've read. And often what I say in response to that is, listen, what did you have for tea on Wednesday? And most people go, I have no clue, but it did you good. And I think it's the same with God's word. It feeds us spiritually. It does us good. Don't beat yourself up when half an hour later you can't remember what you read. A mirror. Why do you think? What does that convey to you? Self-reflection. Thank you. It shows us, George. Shows us adjustments that need to be made. Evelyn? See, to see us as God sees us, yeah. See us as others see us, yeah. Thanks, John. Warts and all. See our own imperfections. This, this one's good. <laughs> We're getting a lot in this one. Yeah. Something we need to keep checking. See other things that are around us. Yeah, thanks. Doesn't lie. Hmm. Thanks, Len. <laughs> as much as we might hope it would. Right, what about a scalpel? Now, I'll come to where these all come from in a moment because I know some of you are going, hey, hang on a minute. Yep. Yep, there speaks a surgeon. <laughs> Sometimes it can be a painful experience. Anything else? Speaks of the wounds of Christ. Okay. Cuts. Cuts to the inside. Thanks, Trevor. Cuts away what is bad. Yep, John. To be used carefully. Very good. It's necessary. It could be necessary as an instrument. It can be very messy. Yep. Yep. And, and God's and God's word is, and we'll come to that in a moment. It can divide. 
Interesting. Yep. Okay. Yep, it's about precision. Okay, it's great. What about this? Maybe a familiar one or a more familiar one. Helps us to see the light. Cuts through darkness. Guides. Makes things clear. Thanks, Ben. Comforts. Mm, yeah. A great thing to have handy. Yeah. Yeah. What about fire? Purifies. Devastates. Consumes. Spreads. Judgment. New life. Whoa. Okay. Sorry? Contagious. Yeah. A hammer? Breaks things down. Builds things up. Yeah. Yeah. Can be used for both purposes. Sorry? Reshapes. Yeah. Thanks, Jim. Sorry? Hits the nail on the head. Yes, Lynn. It's painful. If you whack your thumb. <laughs> Sorry? Yep. Straight in there. No messing around. Repetitive motion. Right? And then again, another maybe more familiar picture, image, object, sword. Defense against the enemy, certainly, yeah. It's also, yep, to use to attack. Warfare. Okay, let me, that's, that's really helpful, really, really helpful. Let me just, let me give you the, the, the verses or where these all come from. I know many of you will know this already. Uh, the first one, the image of bread. Jesus quotes it in the, in the temptation narrative. Uh, but he's quoting from Deuteronomy that man doesn't live on bread alone but on every word that comes from the mouth of God uh, then mirror James 1 22 to 24 do what the word says anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in the mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like this whole idea that whenever we look at a mirror and we, we know first thing in the morning you look, you get up, you see what needs to be put right and you quickly do it before you leave the house this whole idea of God's word, so often it reflects back to us what needs to be put right. And yet so often we walk away from it without doing that. Then the scalpel image, Hebrews 4.12, his powerful word is sharp as a surgeon's scalpel, cutting through everything, whether doubt or defense, laying us open to listen and obey. Uh, Eugene Peterson's take uh, of that verse from the message. Another image, again, very familiar. Your word, a lamp to my feet, a light to my path. That great psalm, 119, longest psalm, but a psalm all about the word of God. Fire, is not my word like fire, declares the Lord. And then the second half of that verse, is not my word like a hammer that breaks a rock in pieces. And then again, the final one, very well known from the armor of God. A passage in Ephesians 6, take the sword of the Spirit, which is the word 
of God. It is a weapon of mass instruction. And, and here's, here's my point in all of this. If we can begin to see the Bible in these ways, then could it radically alter our approach to it, our hunger for it, and our engagement with it? Like if I honestly saw the Bible as, yes, God's word, but more than that, necessary for my daily spiritual nourishment, as a mirror, as a scalpel that just cuts me open, that heals, that exposes, that causes mess, a sword, a weapon, a light, a hammer, a fire. If I could see it from that perspective, would it change my individual engagement with it? And I honestly believe it could. I honestly believe it could. What I'd then like to do just in the last few moments is I'd like to offer you two pieces of advice on how we can use this book. Two practices that can really aid and encourage our engagement with it. These are two aspects of Bible study. There are others, but as I say, in light of time, I'm just going to look at these and very, very quickly. Here they are. Develop biblical meditation and read the Bible whole. Dallas Willard uh, says this about studying God's. Study involves giving much time on a regular basis to meditation upon those parts of the Bible that are most meaningful for our spiritual life together with constant reading of the Bible as a whole. Now, the thing about meditation is when it comes to meditation, that's a loaded word. Because in our context, it's a word that means different things to different people. There are many forms of meditation being practiced and promoted in today's world. And most people, whenever you say meditation, immediately think of transcendental meditation generally. But biblical meditation is very, very different from any other because it requires no secret knowledge, no mysteries, no mantras, no mental gymnastics. But it does require one thing, practice. And the Bible uses two very different Hebrew words to convey the idea of meditation. And together, those two words are used some 58 times. But let me give you two well-known examples. One from the book of Joshua, one from Psalms. The book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. Psalm 1-2, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. To meditate on scripture means to contemplate, to reflect, to ponder, to ruminate is another parallel word on God's word. But let me give you a brief definition of biblical meditation. It's the process of holding a phrase or a verse of scripture in mind, pondering it continually, contemplating it, dwelling on it, and viewing it from every angle we can think of until it deeply affects us. See, biblical meditation is not about emptying the mind. It's actually about filling the mind with scripture and with thoughts of God. And as I say, I want this to be as practical as possible. So let me give you some advice on how to meditate. And I'm rushing this. But select an appropriate verse or passage of scripture. Now let me, let me suggest this in terms of how you go about this this week. Let me encourage you to take those seven references that we have looked at tonight. And maybe one a day for the next seven days. Maybe one a week for the next seven weeks. Maybe one a month for the next seven months. However... But just go away and meditate on those references and meditate on what they say to you and imply to you about God's words. Whenever you take them, select them, read them 
Allow every word to sink in. Read it a number of times. Read it aloud if you can. Listen to the text with the ears of your heart. Underline key words. Write it out. Underline it. Write the text out a number of times, several times. Pin it up. Stick it somewhere where you will see it all the time. So that the word of God is just constantly before you. And allow that word to get deep down into who you are. And use the texts as a talking point with God. Use them as launch pads into how you pray. You know, back in the 1950s, this guy said this. Meditation upon God's word is fast becoming a lost art among many Christian people. This holy exercise of pondering over the word, chewing it as an animal chews its cud to get its sweetness and nutritive virtue into the heart and life, takes time which ill fits into the speed of our modern age. Now, he's writing in the 50s. Today, most Christians' devotions are too hurried and their lives are too rushed. And I think that's so true. Little devotional delicacies. Little thoughts for the day. Not knocking them. But we can't sustain a spiritual life on that alone. We learn to meditate by meditating. It takes time. It takes practice. And therefore it is a discipline. And therefore it's worth pursuing. Then this whole idea of reading the Bible whole. Because one of the things I find with myself, and I'll I'll be very honest here, is I tend to stick with the bits that are familiar. The parts of God's word that are more accessible. So the Gospels, Paul's letters, Psalms, Proverbs. But let me urge us to read all of God's word. All 1189 chapters. And I fully appreciate that when it comes to that, there are many sections in here that appear, and I hope this is, that appear relatively dull. The Levitical laws on mould and goats. Endless genealogies in Second Chronicles. How many times do you come to those and just go, right, where do those finish? And you skip. And in addition, when it comes to God's word, and this is picking up Nathan's point, it is messy because there's lots of puzzling material in here. And I think we've got to be really honest about that. A lot of confusing incidents. Where we read them and we think, I I don't understand that. I don't understand why God has included that. I don't understand why God has revealed that. Or how do you make sense of when, particularly you read the Old Testament, of all the brutal wars that occur. How do you make sense of stories like the Joshua story, where we tend to concentrate on the walking around and the walls coming down, and yet it's also a story about the slaughter of the innocent. How do you deal with that, those aspects of different stories in God's word? It's no wonder when someone was recently asked, if you've read anything in the past month that has somehow undermined your faith, and they replied, yes, the Bible. But to read the Bible whole, it is tough. But either we believe this or we don't. That all scripture is God-breathed. Every phrase, every word, Every sentence contained in God's word is useful for training us in righteousness so that God's people may be thoroughly equipped for every good word. Don't duck the difficult material. Allow it to penetrate into our innermost thoughts and desires. Develop a hunger for God's entire revelation. Don't just stick with the familiar bits. You know, I discovered that half the books, 
discovered that sometime half the books in the Bible apparently can be read in 10 to 45 minutes. Apparently, and I haven't tried this, the entire Old and New Testaments can be read aloud in approximately 88 hours. And a few years ago, the Bible was made into the world's longest talking book, 78 CDs, recorded by the Royal Shakespeare Company. Single issues of a daily newspaper are said to contain as much reading material as the entire New Testament. And I know I find it easier, it would seem, to engage with a daily newspaper than to engage with God's Word. I hope what I've shared tonight just throws out some thoughts. But let me say this. Bible reading can involve a quick thought for the day. I know that. It can be a brief nibble before we leave the house or fall asleep. But don't allow that to become your only personal engagement with God's Word. Take time to meditate on Scripture. Take time to read it whole. Because it is these seven things. Many books given for our information. But this particular one, as we often say, is given for our transformation. So let's get reading.